0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
1: Hi, I'm Jason Greenblatt, and this is The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. This podcast episode is part three of a special series of The Diplomat focused on Afghanistan. In this third episode, I had a conversation with Jeff Smith and Luke Coffey, who each work at the Heritage Foundation, a think tank based in Washington, D.C., which focuses on formulating and promoting conservative public policies. My first guest on this episode is Jeff Smith, a research fellow at the Heritage Foundation's Asian Study Center. Jeff has authored and contributed to multiple books on Asian security issues and regularly briefs officials in the executive and legislative branches of the U.S. government on matters of Asian security. After my interview with Jeff, this episode will continue, and I will discuss the situation in Afghanistan with Luke Coffey. I'm Jason Greenblatt, and this is The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. The interviews on this episode were recorded prior to the Kabul airport attack, which took place on Thursday, August 26th. At least two explosions were reported, and as of the time this podcast is being aired, we do not yet know the number of casualties. Jeff, thank you so much for joining me. I, I want to understand from you why Afghanistan is so important to U.S. security. Can you share your thoughts on that?
0: Well, I think its importance was highlighted for everyone on on September eleventh, two thousand and one. Uh, The horrible terrorist attacks uh, in New York and on the Pentagon, I think, brought home for many Americans how events in a distant corner of the world uh, can influence us here. Um, Afghanistan is important because it had become a nexus for global terrorism under the Taliban rule in the 1990s, and it's since then uh, become important to the U.S. because we've had a ongoing conflict there. Now, one of the longest wars in U.S. history uh, for the past 20 years. And we've we've sacrificed many lives and made a lot of investments in that country. Uh, Generations of Americans have spent time there. And so uh, we've become quite invested in Afghanistan's future over the past 20 years.
1: Jeff, tell me how you think the war has been viewed here in the United States, and in particular in Washington, but largely in America generally.
0: Well, the war began with a great deal of popular support, uh, I think, across the political spectrum here in the U.S., Democrats and Republicans. Uh, across the country, uh, I think, Levels of support were very robust. And in the international community, there was a great deal of support. Even uh, traditional American rivals and competitors were largely supportive of the war effort because it was seen as a just war. There was no question that Al Qaeda was responsible for the attack uh, on 9 11. There was no question that the attack was heinous. There was no question that I think any country would have responded uh, militarily to that type of attack. And so uh, it was seen as the good war, uh, especially when contrasted uh, later with with the Iraq war, which was seen in many corners of the US and the world as the bad war. Um, Eventually as time wore on, I think uh, the American people became somewhat fatigued uh, with the conflict in Afghanistan. And we did gradually begin to see support declining in both parties, uh, frankly. I think there was, particularly after Iraq, uh, growing skepticism of US nation building exercises about our ability to um, bring about democratic change uh, in foreign countries. And as the war dragged into its 10th and then 15th year, um, we began to see people really question why we were there and whether we would be able to accomplish our goals. Um, And so, you know, most recently, I think the American public's views of the Afghan war have been negative. They've largely wanted the United States to pull out, but it has not generally been high on their priority list when you ask them to rank their, their priorities. And I think most of them wanted it to be done in a relatively responsible manner. Um, And I think that's where uh, there's been some disappointment at recent events. You
1: mentioned nation building, and a lot of people would argue, as I think President Biden did, that we shouldn't be in the business of nation building. What's your sense on whether America should be doing this and what the American public thinks about America going around the world doing nation building?
0: I think there's uh, fatigue and frustration uh, and disappointment with with this concept of, of nation building now. I think most Americans are generally supportive of the idea that the spread of freedom and democracy, political freedom, economic freedom is a positive development. It's a good uh, moral outcome. It's a good practical outcome. The United States does not is much less likely to have contentious relations with other democracies. Other democracies are less likely to be malign actors on the world stage. So there's this general sense that the spread of freedom and democracy is a a positive development, both I think among the American public and and the elite expert community. But there's uh, much more recognition of our practical The practical limitations associated with trying to build a democracy uh, in a distant corner of the world where there may not be traditions of democratic governance, where we may not have sufficient appreciation um, of the culture and, and the history and how governance has been practiced in that corner of the world. And so I think there's defiable skepticism about america's ability to do nation building abroad i i think there's also though a question about whether our mission in afghanistan now in 2020 2021 was still a nation building mission it looks much more to me like it had become a limited counterterrorism mission Once we had scaled down from over 100,000 U.S. soldiers down to 5,000 and eventually 2,500, it was the Afghans had been taking the lead in doing most of the fighting since uh, 2015, 2016. We had really scaled back our presence to uh, limited counterterrorism mission, not completely unlike counterterrorism missions we have in many other parts of the world. It was there effectively to secure U.S. interests, protect U.S. personnel, and target uh, threats to the U.S. homeland, and of course provide some support where necessary to the Afghan National Army. And so I'm not sure that that was sufficiently appreciated um, by the American public that we really weren't involved in a nation-building exercise any longer and our our mission had become much more limited the financial cost and the cost in, in human life had become uh, had had come down considerably from the heights in the early 2010s and so uh, frustration with nation building but really our our mission in afghanistan had evolved over time originally from counterterrorism to nation building and back to counterterrorism
1: let's talk about the region around afghanistan are there countries that had a role in perpetuating the conflict within Afghanistan?
0: Absolutely. And there were arguably a few of Afghan uh, Afghanistan's neighbors that had a role in perpetuating the conflict, but one stood far above the rest, uh, and that was Pakistan. And this is now... Um, widely known and recognized and understood by all the parties involved, including the United States and the US intelligence community. But since the inception of the war, since 2001, when Pakistan helped bring uh, Al-Qaeda and Taliban fighters back into Pakistan after the initial US invasion, they spent years there regrouping and eventually launching an insurgency back into Afghanistan years later. We've known about uh, support Pakistan's intelligence services, the ISI, have been providing to the Taliban from the very beginning. I mean, they were instrumental in helping the Taliban uh, take Afghanistan in the 1990s during the uh, Civil War. Uh, But over the years, it became very apparent and U.S. officials admitted in public numerous times that the Pakistani military and intelligence services were harboring the Taliban, uh, were providing considerable assistance to the Haqqani Network, which is a a militant group allied to the Taliban. Um, They have long seen the Taliban as their most effective partner in Afghanistan, uh, the partner most likely to keep Indian influence out of the country, and the partner... um, least likely to challenge Pakistan's interests as they define it, uh, including uh, stirring trouble among Pakistan's large Pashtun population, including challenging uh, the Durand line, uh, the somewhat unsettled border that separates Afghanistan and Pakistan. Um, But there's also this sort of nexus of jihadist ideologies. Uh, The Pakistani state has long funded Uh, armed, supported militant groups, radical Islamist militant groups uh, that either uh, have been targeting India in Kashmir or have been very active in Afghanistan. And so uh, I've long argued that sort of traditional victory in Afghanistan would be impossible without fundamentally changing uh, the calculus in Islamabad. Um, I think many U.S. officials understood that, but there were never serious attempts made uh, to wield sticks to incentivize change uh, from Pakistan uh, with coercive measures. It was always more aid, scholarly lectures about why this wasn't in Islamabad's interests. Um, never was was there an attempt to apply. Uh, escalating pressure until Pakistan abandoned support for these militant groups. And I think that's one of the great tragedies of of the Afghan war.
1: So rarely do I say anything written about this important topic. What do you think, if you were sitting with the Biden administration right now, what advice would you give them to change the calculus in Islamabad so that we're not only Fighting what's happening in Afghanistan in terms of counterterrorism, but widening the stage to make sure that we're actually effective at doing what we went in there to begin with to do.
0: Well, I I, I unfortunately think it's going to take pressure. It's going to require a more contentious U.S.-Pakistan relationship. Um, we have tried economic incentives. Uh, we provided over $20 billion uh, in aid to Pakistan uh, during the Afghanistan war. Um, Time and time again, U.S. political officials and military commanders have gone to Islamabad, uh, pleading with them to abandon their support for the Taliban and the Haqqani network, promising all manner of um, economic uh, aid and inducements and uh, political benefits diplomatic benefits um, none of it has worked and frankly to pakistan's credit uh, their strategy has been a success Uh, not only did their preferred group win some of the struggles on the ground in afghanistan not only were they able to support the taliban Um, support an offensive against an Afghan government that was itself being buoyed not only by the U.S., but by the international community, by many of Afghanistan's neighbors. I mean, it was in some ways a proxy war between much of the world against the Taliban and Pakistan's backing. And Islamabad won. And not only were they successful, but they were able to convince the United States to bankroll its own defeat. I mean, the United States was paying Pakistan, which was then supporting the Taliban against American troops. And so I don't see any combination of carrots and economic incentives and diplomatic benefits that would compel Pakistan to abandon its support for the Taliban. I think it would frankly require the United States and many of its partners in the international community to be prepared to levy considerable sanctions on the Pakistani government and the military and intelligence services and insist that uh, this wave of sanctions will continue to escalate unless and until you abandon your support for the Taliban. I I think that's not not to say that would be easy. Uh, That's not to say it would even be successful frankly. But I think that's likely the only way we could compel a major change in behavior on Pakistan's part.
1: It sounds like Pakistan is laughing all the way to the bank and laughing at us. Who do you think would be natural targets, allies of ours, whether in the region or elsewhere, to help with the effort that you're describing?
0: Well, I think... As many influential members of the international community as the United States could find. I mean, in the region, certainly we have a strong partner and strong ally in India, uh, but they already have very limited uh, relations with Pakistan, a very contentious relationship. Um, I think friends in in Europe, in, in Australia, in Japan, in East Asia, frankly, anyone who's doing business with Pakistan has some measure of influence. Um, And I think a strong international coalition sending a unified message uh, could prove influential. Uh, Arguably the most influential party in Pakistan, though, is China. And although we seem to have some confluence of interest on this question, you know, the Chinese have traditionally been hostile to uh, Islamist militants, Islamist terrorists. Uh, the Chinese have been very reluctant to pressure Pakistan on this question. And frankly, they've already shown some willingness to engage with uh, the Taliban regime. And I think it's it's unlikely now, as the US-China relationship has, has grown uh, far more contentious, that we would be able to uh, foster cooperation on this issue. I find that very unlikely at this stage.
1: I appreciated Jeff Smith's important insight. This special episode of The Diplomat will now continue with a conversation with Luke Coffey, the director of the Allison Center for Foreign Policy Studies at the Heritage Foundation, where he oversees foreign policy and international affairs issues. Luke is a U.S. Army veteran and was the first non-U.K. citizen appointed by the Prime Minister of the U.K. to provide advice to senior British ministers, including helping to shape British defense policy in relation to Afghanistan. I'm Jason Greenblatt, and this is The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. I'm here with Luke Coffey, and Luke, thank you so much for joining me today to talk about Afghanistan.
2: It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on.
1: Let me ask you, why do you think the security situation collapsed so quickly?
2: Well, I think that the main factor is the way the U.S. withdrew from the country, at least militarily. There's been a lot of criticism of the Afghan security forces uh, claiming that they didn't want to fight. Uh, We've heard this from the very top. President Biden himself repeatedly makes this very unfair accusation against the Afghan forces. But in reality, the Afghan forces have been leading combat operations day to day since 2015. And in fact, since 2015, they've suffered over 70,000 soldiers killed in action and and tens of thousands of, of more Afghans have been wounded uh, because of fighting. Uh, so it's a bit unfair to say that they, uh, they will not fight. But the reason why uh, they didn't put up much of a resistance over the past couple of weeks is because they were equipped and trained by the United States, but they also relied on American close air support. They ally- relied on thousands of us contractors to service and maintain their helicopters, their planes, some of their vehicles. Uh, they relied on the Americans for some intelligence and for logistics. And then all of a sudden, uh, all of these capabilities are removed uh, from the country in some cases, literally overnight. And I've heard of cases from Afghan soldiers uh, that have mentioned this very point that they were involved in a clearing operation in a particular province in Afghanistan. And then, you know, one night they, you know, one morning they wake up to discover that they no longer have access to U.S. close air support. Uh, so I think it was a combination of being demoralized by the fact that your number one uh, battle buddy, as we used to say in the army, left you high and dry because of the orders of the White House, Uh, on top of the the, the willingness of some senior Afghans to flip sides almost uh, uh, at, you know, they could turn on a dime who their allegiance is with. and, And you combine these two factors and you had this complete breakdown of the Afghan armed forces.
1: So you're a U.S. Army veteran, and thank you for your service. You're also um, the first non-UK citizen appointed by the prime minister to provide advice to senior British ministers, including helping to shape British defense policy in relation to Afghanistan. What role did other countries, including Britain, but other countries in Europe and elsewhere, play play? in Afghanistan. Right now, of course, everyone is focused on the United States and lots of accusations about how the United States left everybody high and dry. I'd like to understand what other countries were there, how much they helped, how much they helped militarily, uh, how much they helped financially, who's still there? Because part of the discussion needs to be, is it America's job to be here? And if so, who should be helping America?
2: Right. That's a very good question. Um, Well, at the height, the coalition uh, in Afghanistan had 50 members, Um, the majority of whom were from NATO. But there were NATO partners such as Australia, um, South Korea, uh, the United Arab Emirates, uh, Qatar, Bahrain, uh, there was a, a, a number of, uh, countries that participated at, like I said, at the height it was about 50, um, the troop contributions varied, uh, the country that contributed the most on a per capita basis was Georgia, you know, the country in the South Caucasus. They've also, they also suffered the, the most killed in action, uh, per capita. Uh, the largest military contribution of course came from the United States, uh, second to that was the united kingdom when i worked for the the british government as you alluded to uh, this was 2010 2011 and at this time the british were uh, responsible for one of the deadliest parts of of afghanistan this central section of helmand province in the south uh, and they had about 10,000 soldiers um In operating in this this small area of land in Helmand province. That incidentally only accounted for 1% of Afghanistan's total population, but in 2011 accounted for 20% of the whole country's violence. Uh, And they sacrificed greatly. Um, uh, Other other smaller countries that have smaller militaries really stepped up to the plate. Uh, Denmark, uh, for example, Estonia. Um, Some of the bigger countries uh, that you would expect more from, like Germany or Italy or Spain, did contribute over the course of the conflict, thousands of soldiers, but uh, in, in places which were always considered to be relatively stable and secure, and then they would be burdened by national caveats. These national caveats restricted what these forces could and could not do. For example, when I served in Afghanistan in 2005, there was a caveat on the German Air Force where it couldn't fly at night. Other militaries couldn't leave the base. They could do things on the base, but they couldn't leave the base. And the the list of these national caveats was a very long one. It was always a, a, a headache for especially us commanders to try to figure out which forces can do what um so it was a it was definitely uh mixed but overall unbalanced um there at least in recent memory or in recent history i should say there hasn't been such a broad uh, coalition for one particular military mission than what we saw in afghanistan
1: and and the countries then that really didn't participate or had significant rules about participation or participated less than the U.S. Are some of these countries now criticizing the U.S.? You know, it's one thing for the U.S. to now have a, a national conversation of why were we there over two decades through four presidents, two Republicans, two Democrats. Should we be there? Is it is isn't our job. That's an internal. Con- how did we leave? Of course. How we left uh, in such a rush that the Taliban took over with lightning speed and thousands of Americans are stranded and Afghans who helped us are stranded in their families. But that's an internal U.S. conversation. The world, of course, is criticizing the United States, in particular the Biden administration. But are they a little bit hypocritical? Meaning, were they there? Were they spending money, losing lives? And I understand Georgia and Britain and others did. But... Uh, Are some of the loudest voices criticizing us people who didn't put their blood, sweat and tears into Afghanistan the way the United States did?
2: Well, that's mixed as well. Um, I would say the most vocal criticism uh, has actually come from the United Kingdom. Uh, I would say President Biden was all but censured in the House of Commons this week. Never before had a U.S. president received such condemnation from the British Parliament. And like I said, Britain, probably after the United States, was the country that contributed the most. A lot of European countries, I think, were secretly quite pleased that uh, Biden pulled the plug in Afghanistan, regardless of how he did it or what the consequences are, because they never really wanted to go along with the mission anyway for reasons you sort of alluded to. They didn't want to spend the money. They didn't want to make the sacrifices. Uh, in the end, many of them did, uh, reluctantly, but they didn't, that wasn't their preference. Um, and of course, uh, there's always a certain amount of uh, hypocrisy in international affairs, and with Afghanistan, it is no different. What I find slightly hypocritical is a lot of the voices who were sort of complaining about U.S. military intervention in the country um, or saying that uh, you know, the U.S. needs to get out and, and stop this. Um, are now some of the strongest supporters of the U.S. remaining there to make sure that the security situation remains stable and gets back under control. Uh, So that, that, you know, they can't have it both ways.
1: Okay, so what about President Ashraf Ghani? He simply fled. In his first public remarks, he said that he fled to avoid further bloodshed. Was he a bad investment for the United States? Well, clearly, in
2: retrospect, uh, (laughs) he was a terrible investment. Um, You President Ghani himself was slightly was always slightly controversial. Um, You know, the U.S., of course, had a big say in who was going to be the leader and president of Afghanistan, but not a complete say, not a total say. You know, there were uh, there were elections and although they weren't perfect, um, you know, they were contested and the Afghan people did have some say in his selection as well. But I think uh, he was the wrong man for the time. Uh, Under the circumstances, I think Afghanistan needed a stronger, more strategic leader, and Ghani is more of the academic, uh, more of an academic background, more of a Uh, philosophical background. And when he mentioned this fact that he fled because he was worried about more bloodshed, I think really it it would have been his blood that had been shed had he remained behind. I I realize that his chief executive officer, Abdullah Abdullah, um, has stayed behind and he's actually already had meetings with the Taliban. But I, I cannot imagine a scenario where they would have let President Ghani live whether or not he should have stayed and fought to the death, that's a whole different matter. His vice president um, has stayed, and he's part of this, uh, this new resistance movement uh, that is starting to form. Begani fled to the United Arab Emirates via Uzbekistan, and by many accounts, he brought a lot of cash with him, which, um, well isn't uh well to be frank is not very shocking uh, that, that he did this this is sort of par for the course for uh these circumstances
1: so you have afghans in terror right falling off airplanes that they're clinging to to escape and then you have somebody fleeing not standing by his country but as you say worse potentially bringing piles and piles of cash to reward himself for leaving a big mess and running away
2: yeah, that's right. And, uh, th- and I believe that is why this notion that he might be, you know, president in exile, or, you know, some sort of opposition leader from abroad, this, this is not going to float Afghans, uh, I think the, the, the Afghans have had their eyes open now to Ghani and, and his behavior. And um it, I think the one unifying factor that might bring together the Taliban movement and those that don't support the Taliban are their mutual uh, hatred for Ghani uh, right now.
1: Right now, we're relying on the Taliban to give safe passage to Americans to get to the airport. Uh, It seems maybe they're doing that. They seem not to be giving safe passage to Afghans who we're trying to get out and Of course, we're not doing a great job at getting them out, but some of them can't even get there. And the Taliban are also saying that they're going to grant amnesty for everybody and perhaps, perhaps loosen some restrictions. Can we believe anything the Taliban say? Do you think it's possible that they realize that for them to really retain control, they have to change their ways to some degree? Or will the Taliban always be the Taliban, the brutal terrorist force who will subjugate the people of Afghanistan once again?
2: Well, they've def- definitely changed their tone. And at least in the capital, they are trying to show that they have changed and they have a very slick PR operation uh, in place as well. Um, but reports coming from the provincial capitals and from the countryside show that this idea of a uh, general amnesty is not being followed through. Um, in some places uh, around the uh, A country, women are being turned back from their universities. Uh, They're being told uh, not to come into work. But then in Kabul, you can see videos of women going to school and, you know, women working. Uh, So it's a very confused situation. I think what this illustrates already is that there's a difference between, you know, capturing a city and then controlling a city. And it also shows how decentralized um the taliban movement is you know there right now there isn't just one single person calling the shots for the whole movement um the the taliban insurgency at least in the last probably 10 to 12 years has been a very localized one with localized taliban leaders um, having more autonomy and calling the shots separate from the Doha contingent, as it's normally uh, referred to. Uh, But in my opinion, there is nothing to suggest that uh, the Taliban can be trusted. They haven't proven that they can be trusted um, in the past. Uh, So for me, my starting assumption as a policymaker would be that, you know, you can't trust them. And then you have to see over time if they can be trusted or not. But I suspect that um, we're not going to see uh, a new, you know, liberal democracy flourishing in Afghanistan with, you know, equality and, you know, women's rights and minority rights and this sort of thing. I think the they will gradually default back to their original position. Um, in terms of American citizens green card holders and SIV um, uh, individuals these are the Afghans who have been you know helping the US over the past two decades with interpreting and translating or you know working on our military facilities um, in terms of them getting free access by the Taliban to get to the airport again this is another situation that is slightly murky. Um, the details that are coming out, are showing in fact that many are being stranded behind Taliban checkpoints, US citizens included. Uh, I think um, on balance, more US citizens are able to get to the airport and get out than um, the Afghans who qualify to get out. But again, this shows, in my opinion, the lack of planning and foresight by the Biden administration on how to do an evacuation of this scale. Uh, They would have kept Bagram airfield open, in my opinion, had they really known that an evacuation like this was going to be needed Um, for a number of reasons. You know, Bagram is relatively close to Kabul and there are very good roads that connect it. Uh, has two air, air strips instead of one um, and the uh, Kabul International Airport has it um, it has the the uh, the facilities to house and accommodate you know thousands of people in a very secure manner before you know while we wait for them to fly out but instead we're stuck using this very urbanized airport completely surrounded by all sides uh, with like city sprawl um, that's now fully controlled by the Taliban in terms of who comes in and who comes out. And it's a dreadful situation. And, you know, these people who the the, the individuals you saw holding on to the C-17 landing gear, um, you know, or, or the, the video footage of the, you know, the, the father throwing his infant to a U.S. soldier over a barbed wire fence to get out of the country shows the level of desperation i mean these people aren't stupid and if one thinks that they have a better chance of surviving by holding on to a c-17 landing gear than working or staying back with the taliban it shows how desperate everyone really is and in the case of the this the the young man who fell from the c-17 comes to find out uh, come to find out he was a member of the afghan national soccer team so you know clearly someone who you know, at, at least had a, you know, reasonably uh, stable imp- life uh, before the Taliban arrived.
1: So you mentioned the Bagram Air Force Base. What what policy reason would there have been, knowing that we had tens of thousands of people to help escape Taliban rule, and and maybe we would not realized how fast the Taliban could take over, but. What would have been the logic to close that airfield and use the other airport rather than keep Bagram open?
2: I don't know what the logic is. And the administration has been very cagey on this point. You know, on one hand, you know, President Biden says he knew that this was going to be chaotic. He knew that it was not going to go smoothly. But then he'll say, well, you know, our intelligence didn't say that the government would fall in 11 days well, if you knew it was going to be chaotic and if, if you knew it wasn't going to go smoothly, then why wouldn't you keep Bagram airfield open? I mean, to me, that would be the last facility that the U S military would close. Um, when you do a, a, an operation like this, uh, for reasons that I have already stated, you know, that you have two very good roads that connect it from Kabul. It's about 30 miles away, but, uh, you know, if the Taliban were serious about letting people go, Americans go, the US could easily secure these two roads. I mean, they've been probably the two most secured roads in Afghanistan for two decades. Um, I've, you know, personally traveled up and down these roads, uh, you know, many, many times, uh, when I was serving there. Um, and then you have, like I said, the two airfields and the ability to keep it secure. And it would really be the U S that would control who would get in and out, not the Taliban controlling who would get in and out if we had stayed at Bagram. But also, um, we, we kind of look at this in a, in isolation um if if we should have considered the fact that if if we need to get our people out well then you know 50 other countries are going to want to get their people out too uh and that just adds to the chaos and complexity of using that tiny airport in, in Kabul. i mean i would um ask your listeners to just you know, go to google maps and type in Kabul international airport and see what it looks like uh, it, it is you know, in the middle of Kabul, surrounded on all sides by urban sprawl. On one side, there are some mountains, but you know there are buildings between uh, the airport and, and the mountains. Um, it's not idea at all to have this sort of evacuation to take place.
1: So we all hope and pray that we'll get all of the Americans out, and of course the Afghans and other our friends and allies who helped us. Let's assume for this next question that we managed to do that despite the chaos. In retrospect, now that the Taliban are back in charge, was it worth the precious American lives that were lost, the Americans who were wounded? the I've heard reports of over a trillion dollars spent by America in Afghanistan. How could one evaluate the overall cost to America and its allies and the results and now the change? Well, I
2: don't think that um, any... I think you'd be very difficult to make the argument now that the U S is better off or the U S is safer with the Taliban back in control of the whole country. You know, I mean, the, the sad irony here is that the Taliban will actually control more of Afghanistan on September 11th, 2021 than it did on September 11th, 2001. And on, you know, on one hand, you can, you can say, well, OK, uh, the Taliban are back in charge, but you know, al-Qaeda cannot or does not currently use Afghanistan as a major base to plan and launch international terrorism. And for the past two decades, there hasn't been a terrorist attack against the United States that has originated and been planned from Afghanistan. But on the other hand, we had a, a situation where you know, the Taliban were out of power. Um, For two decades, the Taliban, while able to capture some of the more rural regions of Afghanistan, could not even capture and hold even one of Afghanistan's 34 provincial capitals. All the urban areas were under the control of the Afghan government. And in the past few years, we've done this with very few troops. Um, The U.S. has not been leading combat operations since 2015. The Afghans have been. Um, and with, you know, President Trump came into office and there were about 17,000 U.S. troops uh, in place by the time he left and Joe Biden came in, there were 2,500, but we were there to, we also provided, you know, civilian contractors to help the Afghan military. And like I said earlier, provided air support, uh, and this was enough, uh, to keep the Taliban from winning, uh. That would, nobody makes the argument that this was enough for the Afghan government to win outright, but these the small number of troops was definitely enough to keep the Taliban from winning. And now, um, because of the decision taken by the Biden administration, uh, we have a situation where the Taliban now controls the whole country and we don't know what the consequences will be we we don't know how transnational terrorist organizations will come back to afghanistan we don't know the impact that this will have on other islamist fundamentalist movements around the world one of the reasons why isis became so popular and was able to recruit the way it did is because it was able to put up some some points on the scoreboard early on and you know success uh when when you're successful people want to join your organization So, you know, the Taliban's success has now emboldened uh, U.S. adversaries uh, and also Islamists in a way that has not happened since 9-11. And you can bet that there will be countries like China, like Russia, like Iran, who will push the envelope just that much further now to see what they can get away with with this administration. So um, I, I don't think handing over the whole country to the Taliban uh, was ma- has made the 20 years uh, we spent there and all the money we spent and the blood and treasure and those who have lost their lives and been wounded and have had life-altering, uh, you know, wounds to them. I don't think that it was worth it, to be frank. It could have been worth it, but it's not. So
1: setting aside the how we withdrew, a lot of problems, lots of problems with that. I get that. And other than President Biden extending the timeline to withdraw by several months, was there any policy difference in the goal between President Trump and President Biden? Or do they essentially share the same goal of getting out of Afghanistan? And if yes, is that because essentially that's what the American public wanted?
2: Well, that's a, that's a very interesting question. The desire to get out of Afghanistan was something that President Trump and Biden shared. Um, it's probably one of the few things that the two leaders have in common. The difference, I would say, lies in the fact that President Biden came into office and, and at least having a new administration went into it very blindly. When President Trump entered office, it was clear he wanted out out of Afghanistan, but he conducted an interagency review, which looked at, you know, the security situation on the ground, the U.S. interests in the region, the consequences and impact of leaving. And in the end, even though he said many times he was going to take all U.S. troops out, he never did. Now, Biden came in, he did no review, no assessment of the situation, no assessment of how the negotiations and peace talks were going. And he said, you know, we're leaving. Uh, And he's made very clear since then that he didn't really care about the consequences that he wanted out. Um, In terms of this question about the American people wanting out, honestly, until President Trump started talking about this concept of um, ending forever wars. And then, of course, President Biden repeating this and continuing with this narrative of forever wars. I don't think your average American really cared or thought one way or the other about our presence in afghanistan it was very minimal very few u.s casualties i mean the last combat uh, death was almost two years ago Um, in terms of costs and relative terms it's very low compared to what it was at the height i don't think your average american thought much about it one way or the other but if uh, but when people start talking about ending forever wars it, it made it sound like the U.S. still had, you know, 100,000 troops in the country leading combat operations, um, taking major, major casualties. And this just wasn't the case. In fact, the, 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 the two and a half thousand troops that the U.S. had in there um, as a predominantly training mission for the Afghan military uh, is very similar to the military footprint that the U.S. has In other places around the world and nobody even knows or cares or talks about it i mean it's not a secret it's just nobody talks about it or or really cares and the irony in the case of joe biden uh, is that the force that he inherited is about the size of the force and the mission for the force that he himself had been advocating for for years in 2009 when president obama underwent his afghan strategy review Uh, Joe Biden, as vice president, advocated for the small footprint focused on training and counterterrorism. Uh, Others around Obama advocated for this military surge. Obama picked the military surge. Forces peaked at over 100,000. But now Biden inherited his own plan and then he rejected that. Uh, So. If Trump had stayed stayed in power, or if he had won a second term, who knows um, how he would have handled the May first deadline? Uh, we have seen a, a, a pattern of President Trump's behavior in foreign policy over the past, you know, well during the four years of his presidency, to be one that's actually quite flexible and, and pragmatic. Um, you know, take the situation with Syria, for example. Uh, uh, you know, he, he said that we're leaving, we're withdrawing, blah, 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 blah. And then all of a sudden, you know, we still have like almost a thousand troops there because of the realities on the ground. He, 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 sh- he showed an ability to perhaps change or, or pursue a different path if it's required. I, it's impossible to know how a second Trump administration would have handled that May 1st deadline. May, perhaps he would have said, OK, we're leaving. See you later. Or perhaps he would have, he could have said, you know what, the Taliban are not living up to their side of the bargain, which they weren't. I mean, no, there's been no uh, objective assessment that shows that the Taliban was reducing violence in any meaningful way um, during the period of the negotiations. Uh, and so, you know, President Trump could have said, OK, well, you know what, we'll meet you halfway. We're keeping a small force at Bagram to conduct counterterrorism operations, but we're not fully Withdrawing, or we're going to stay until you and the Afghan government actually come up with a transitional plan built on compromise. Um, but we, we'll never know because uh, he 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 didn't win the second term. Uh, but what we do know is that Biden did win the second term. He conducted no review for the situation in Afghanistan, and he decided to, uh, to, to leave. And, and he, he's the one that is responsible for what is happening in Afghanistan. Not President Trump, not President Obama, not President Bush. Uh, yes, throughout the course of the war, there have been a lot of mistakes made. But uh, the, President Biden is the current occupant of the, of the White House, and I just find it very odd that you know he's, he quite easily has reversed, and quite happily ha- has reversed, numerous Trump administration policies. Uh, but for some reason, he claims that the, the policy on Afghanistan, the May 1st deadline, was one he couldn't change. Uh, you know, uh, it's very convenient that this is the one policy from the last administration that he felt he could not change. Uh, uh, so he he's hypocritical in that sense as well. But this is uh, firmly on his watch, and I think the history books will reflect that.
1: If you were sitting in front of President Biden right now, what would you tell him both in terms of advice to get these tens of thousands of people out, Americans and Afghans and our allies, citizens and residents as well? but also the day after, meaning we're out. We're we're not about to send tens of thousands of troops back in, I assume. How do we get this problem back in the box in a palatable way so we acknowledge the mistake, but also try to fix it as best as we possibly can?
2: Well, the, the first thing I think that needs to be done is if he is in contact with members of the Taliban, um, As he says or claims that his administration is, he needs to tell the Taliban that the U.S. forces are staying in Kabul International Airport until every last American citizen, green card holder, and SIV applicant is out of that country. And if that means staying beyond August 30th, then that's then so be it. Um, secondly. Uh, I'm hearing reports that the there is a bottleneck building up at Doha in Qatar, where all the U.S. flights from Kabul are heading to um, when they leave Afghanistan. Uh, the U.S. needs to right now be working, and perhaps they are, I don't know, but if they're not, the U.S. needs to be negotiating and working with another regional country to allow um, another uh, airport that U.S. flights can use to make sure that we don't have this bottleneck so we can continue the constant flow of flights from Kabul out of the country um, to, to safety. And this could be a country, another country in the Middle East or a country in Central Asia. The Germans, for example, are using uh, Uzbekistan in this regards. And then in terms of the longer term, um, you know, the, the war perhaps has ended for the united states in afghanistan but for afghans this is just the new phase in a conflict that has really been going on for 42 years now since 1979 and as i alluded to earlier it's quite different capturing a city and then controlling a city and a lot of the taliban's going to have their hands full uh the, the trying to govern Um, a country as big and diverse as Afghanistan. It's not like they have some silver bullet uh, that the previous Afghan government didn't have. And when I look at the number of uh, senior Afghan officials that flipped senior military commanders or provincial governors uh, who flipped to join the Taliban, essentially this country was not taken over by military means, it was taken over by collapse of the Afghan government. When I see all these uh, senior officials that flipped, it makes me think that, you know, they're going to be expected to get something back. You know, the Taliban are going to have to manage the new reality, their new political reality on the ground. And depending on how well they manage that will probably determine how s- stable and secure the country becomes. I And, and, as, and also, there's already a resistance movement that um, is starting to form. Uh, And it's very early days on this, but uh, you have to assume that there will be some sort of insurgency or resistance to the new Taliban government. So the U.S. needs to figure out a way to ensure it can maintain its strategic interests in the region without having that military footprint in Afghanistan. And I think that if I was advising Biden, I would say, you know, you need to double down on your relationship with India you need to double down on our engagement with the Central Asian republics for those countries that are around um, the region. uh, So we can at least, you know, have good situational awareness of what is happening. Uh, And that diplomacy needs to be starting right now.
1: Luke Coffey, thank you so much for sharing your time and your insight and your thoughts. I really, really appreciate it.
2: It was my pleasure. I really enjoyed the uh, conversation.
1: I'm Jason Greenblatt, and this is The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. I think these conversations with Jeff Smith and Luke Coffey from the Heritage Foundation help us understand a little more about the tragic situation in Afghanistan, how we got here, what's happening there now, and some insight about the future. If you found this podcast interesting, please do listen to the other episodes in this special series about Afghanistan. On episode one, I had a conversation with Sala, not his real name, an Afghan law student who was evacuated from Kabul. On episode two of this special series, I spoke to Colonel Richard Kemp, a retired British Army officer. I think you'll understand more about what is going on in Afghanistan by listening to these episodes. I encourage you to listen to our other podcasts, which included interviews with former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, Ambassador Nikki Healy, and former Senator Joe Lieberman, with many other interesting guests to follow. If you find these podcasts interesting, please do share them with your friends, family, and colleagues. I'm Jason Greenblatt, and this is The Diplomat. brought to you by Newsweek.